God, we need your help to believe more and more what we just sang, that you are faithful even when the clouds of difficulty surround us and seem to hide your face, you are faithful still. When the sun shines brightly, you are faithful still. And we need to, to know more uh, today um, the different variations and sources of your mercy that you promised are new every single morning. So through the opening of your word today, uh, I pray that you'd strengthen our faith, that you'd increase our hope, that you would uh, move us to a place of conviction, that we would be um, motivated to obedience in ways that maybe we walked in here apathetic to. Would you magnify your name? Uh, help us see the beauty of the gospel in the face of Jesus this morning. Through your word, we love you. We're grateful to, to belong to you by no work of our own, but through the work of Jesus. And so we boast only in him and not in ourselves. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. Good morning, Crossway family. How you doing? Good to see everyone. My name is Matt Moorhead. I'm one of the pastors here and such a joy to be with you this morning, to be back with you. Uh, Haley and I had a chance to travel last weekend. We did a ministry trip to Chicago. There's a Crossway there. Actually, one of only three churches in our network of churches that bears the name Crossway, ironically. So I had a chance to get up in another church and say good morning, Crossway family, uniquely in that church as well. And, um, but man, we, we miss y'all. Like, I love this church. Like, I love being here. Like, this, this is more than, so much more than just a job. Like, I consider you my family, and when we are away, we miss you. Um, and I thank God for the, the work he's doing here. I'm grateful to be able to, to serve you along with the other pastors here and just to do life with you. And we get a chance to dive into God's Word again this morning. We're going to be in the book of Second Peter, and so you can grab your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible with you, if you don't have a Bible in general, you can grab one of the chair Bibles uh, in front of you. Please feel free to take that home with you so you can have God's Word for yourself. It's on page I believe 957, if you work from the back of your Bible, uh, you'll, you'll get about maybe five, six books in, you'll hit Second Peter. Some of you may have heard the quote, knowledge is power. Uh, Francis Bacon, who's a philosopher, is credited with that statement. And Thomas Jefferson, in many of his writings, used that statement multiple times, and one of the times he used it talking about the unique way that the state of Virginia, because of its education, held a place of prominence uh, in the states as they collected together. He said this, he says, knowledge is power and ignorance is weakness. So that statement from Thomas Jefferson in some ways is congruent with the book of Second Peter, because the book of Second Peter uh, it seems to, to me, based on reading it, that the, the aim of Peter is to strengthen Christians so that they finish well. So the aim of this book, as we read it, this letter written to first century Christians, is to strengthen the people of God so that we finish our lives knowing and obeying God fully. And so there's a way in which, as he talks, a lot of different moments about knowledge. We'll see it multiple times, even in the short four verses we'll be in this morning, Knowledge is a key part of this book. To, to know God and to grow in grace is kind of the summation of the theme of this book, to know him. And so there's a sense in which in the Christian life, knowledge is power. To know God is to, to know the, the power of God over sin and in our lives, to make us new, to help us grow in the, 
the grace of God. So in that sense, knowledge is power. And you could also say, conversely, that ignorance to God is weakness. A diminishing view of the, the character and the presence and the power of God will weaken the child of God. But knowing and growing in our knowledge of God will give us power for this life. Knowing God and growing in grace. So there's a truth in this book. This is, there's so much encouraging here, um, and hopefully I'll have time to get through what I have. But God can be known, and that knowledge of him transforms who you are. Now, depending on your background, that first part, you might have a hard time even embracing that God can be known. God has revealed himself in creation, but specifically in his word and most specifically in his son, the Lord Jesus. And in making himself known, he wants us to, to know him better, to know him completely, to know him fully, that we might walk in the fullness of that knowledge. God can be known, and that knowledge of him transforms who we are. So despite how we come in this morning, maybe just kind of embattled from the week, and maybe for someone in this room, maybe you don't know Jesus Christ, I want to encourage you that through Jesus, you can know God. You can be reconciled to him, to know him as your father, and not the one who is opposed to you because of sin. But let's read Second uh, Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, and we're going to get through the greeting. And much like in many New Testament letters, these greetings are not just a simple from to. They're rich in theology, and so we'll camp there for a second. We'll read verses 1 through 4. Why don't you join with me there? Second Peter, this is God's word for us. Simeon Peter, a servant, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, just a first quick note. You know, you might have heard me read Simeon Peter. Don't be disturbed. Most of us know Peter as Simon Peter. Simeon is an Aramaic translation of the name Peter. Same guy. He's an apostle. If you're disheartened this morning, because you feel like your past defines your future. Take heart in this book written by this man. Because Peter knew deep, deep failure in his relationship to God. At the end of the Gospels, you see Peter deny that he even knew Jesus three times. And because of the work of the Holy Spirit in his life, moving him to a place of usability, we see on almost the very next page in the book of Acts, Peter standing up and preaching Christ and thousands of people come to faith. And what explains that kind of transformation? Jesus does. In between those things is the grace of God through the personal work of Jesus. If you find yourself clouded and mindful of your failure this morning, just be encouraged that Simon Peter is among those who have failed but been redeemed by the grace of God. It's good news, right, for all of us? It's good news for the broken and frail heart for those mindful of their own sin and 
failure. He says, Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ. So in a world of posturing to impress, this humble greeting is pretty rattling. If we linger here just for a second. So Peter simultaneously occupied the place of highest prominence in the first century church. He was an apostle. He was among those who walked with Jesus, was an eyewitness to his ministry and his resurrection. So he held the the preeminent position in the church, but simultaneously calls himself a slave of Christ. He's a servant apostle, a leader for and a slave of his master, Jesus Christ. So if we are Christians, there's a sense in which, a real sense in which we are slaves. We're slaves to Jesus. And the paradox of the Christian life is that if you've come to know Jesus, you see this in the book of Romans really clearly, that you've been set free. So looking back to the book of Exodus where the people of God were rescued from captivity, slavery, that the people of God now, Christians are rescued by the mighty hand of God from slavery to sin, from the, the power of sin the punishment that we deserve because of sin, ultimately the very presence of sin, we're we're rescued by the very hand of God, free from sin. Yes and amen. But the unique thing is this, is we're actually captive to Christ. So we're freed from sin, but we become slaves of righteousness, slaves of God. But the one who's a slave of God is actually a slave to freedom a slave to the grace and the life and the joy of God only provided through the Lord Jesus. And that's the paradox of the Christian life. The man or woman who is a slave of Christ is a slave to freedom. Having been set free from our bondage to sin, we're now captive to the eternal life found in the risen Son. Praise be to God. And the humility of Christ in Peter isn't just seen in his greeting in the the from part of his letter, Peter demonstrates gospel-driven humility in the to section of this letter. So he says, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. There's a whole lot in here. But it is really pretty remarkable that Peter kind of flattens the ground as an apostle between him and any other person who's trusted in Jesus by faith. All the pilgrims, all the saints in Asia Minor who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. Peter's faith was no greater than the smallest or the least in the kingdom of God. There's no caste system in Christianity based on your ethnicity or pedigree or personality or socioeconomic status. From the rich man to the pauper, from the child to the theologian, there is one faith, and every single person through their faith in Jesus has equal standing before God and drink from the same well of eternal life. And all God's people said, by faith in Jesus Christ alone, we made right with God. From the smallest to the greatest among us, right? The gospel of Jesus is a steamroller that flattens the ground and every man stands acceptable before God on the same basis, namely the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. I want to pause here just for a second because righteousness and some of these Christian terms, I think can at times, if we're not familiar, can be a little bit confusing. But let me just kind of explain for a second what we're talking about here, just in real brief form. And particularly for those of you who maybe haven't grown up in the church, maybe you're not a Christian this morning, let me just commend a couple things to you. 
and ask you to listen to these things. But the Bible gives us this depiction. The book of Romans specifically said there's, there's no one in this room. There's no one who's ever been living other than Jesus himself that's righteous. There's no single person that has ever walked the earth that can ever claim that they're righteous. There's not one. That all of us have gone astray and broken the law of God, every single one. And all of us are justly condemned on the side of God. There's, there's none righteous, not one. Romans 6.23 says the wages for our lack, of our lack of righteousness is death. We're justly condemned in the sight of God. But the miracle of the, the good news of the Christian message is this, is that when you trust in Jesus, that he on the cross became your sin, and you look to him by faith and say, the very thing that I could not do through my imperfect life, I trust that you did by obeying God completely. And I believe that you took my sin upon yourself. What happens in that gaze of faith is the righteousness of Jesus is credited to our account. He, be he, become, he became everything that we are, namely sinful. He became our sin so that by faith in him, we might become the righteousness of God through him. And that's the miracle of the gospel. It's simple but profound. Look to Jesus and find in him the only source of righteousness before God. And I can assure you, I've never been there, but theologically I can assure you, when you stand before God, the thing that you will need the most is righteousness. And you simply cannot obtain it any other way than through faith in Jesus Christ. Go to him. Run to him. Heave yourself upon him. Trust in him to make you right in the sight of God. That's the Christian message. Believe and trust in Jesus to make you righteous. Romans 5, 17 through 21 says it this way. If we can just kind of bask in this space just for a moment. And Paul in Romans 5 is kind of contrasting the work of Adam as the one who sinned over and against the work of Jesus. And he says this. He says, For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam. Death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification or for those to be declared not guilty. That's what justification is. And life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Good news, right? We know God. We've been, we've been given the righteousness of Jesus to our account through faith. But because we know God, let's grow in grace. Verse 2, Peter says, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace is like they grow in the soil of the knowledge of God. This increase, this abounding experiential grace and the peace of God subjectively increases as we know God more. In John 17, a unique chapter, not many times you get to look at, like, how would God pray for us as his people? John 17 is that chapter. Jesus prays for you, for me, for his people. 
And so what he says is found in these couple of verses. John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. As he continues to pray, verses 14 and se- through 17, he says, I've given them your word. This is his people. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world. Just as I am not of the world, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. R.C. Sproul said it this way. R.C. Sproul is a pastor teacher. He's gone to be with the Lord now. He started Ligonier Ministries. You can pick up anything from him and you'd benefit immensely. I'm reading a commentary of his to study for this book. He says, the more we learn of God, the more we know him and the greater capacity we have to love him. And as you, if, you, if you were to survey at all R.C. Sproul's ministry, it's, it's marked profoundly by a, a knowledge, a deep knowledge and love for the things of God. And I was struck by a statement he made in his book. He said, I wish I had 10,000 more lifetimes to study about God. And I found myself kind of disturbed a little bit. Like, do I possess that kind of eagerness to, to know God? He's given us so much in his word to study and to meditate upon and to pursue and that we might know him more. And do we have that kind of hunger to know God? In Ephesians 1 and 3, and I won't read these passages, Paul even talks about for the church in Ephesus, he says, I've got to pray for you. I pray for you continually that you might have even the strength to know the hope that you have in Jesus, the immeasurable greatness of his power, You need strength to know, people of God, the the measure of the love that God has for you. It defies imagination. So the only way that we can pursue a depth in that knowledge is to, to know God more, to pursue a deeper knowledge of God through his word, through prayer and communion with him, to not just know him generally, but experientially, accurately know him. Are we striving to know God more and grow in grace? And knowing God is more than just intellectual knowledge, but an accurate experiential knowledge, a knowledge of God that leads to a growth in grace, a growth in godliness. D.L. Moody, who is a preacher and author, he said this, he says, our great problem, meaning Christians, is the problem of trafficking in unlived truth. We try to communicate what we've never experienced in our own life. Are we trying to give away something we've never really experienced in our own life? Like namely the, the power of God that's, that's found in knowing God more and more. That God can be known and that knowledge of him transforms who you are because when God breaks through the door of the human heart, what happens? He doesn't leave you the same. How could it be? How could it be that God of the universe would come into a human heart and leave them the same? May it never be. We become slaves to God. We put away an old man, put on a new. In fact, we have been made new, so new, in fact, that old things have passed, new things have come, we're new creations in Christ. And there's a power that is present to make all this happen. You see in verse 3, that his, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. There's just so many deep truths in here, but I don't want us to be afraid of them. In fact, I want us to push into them. Like our relationship with Jesus begins with God's sovereign initiative in our life. 
is calling his people, drawing their hearts, giving them eyes to see. Our relationship with Jesus begins with God's sovereign calling and is matured by his sovereign power. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. In 1 Peter 1, same author, different book that we just studied through, according to chapter 1, verse 3 through 5, according to his great mercy, God has caused us to be born again to obtain an inheritance reserved in heaven for us, protected by the power of God through faith. 1 Peter 5, 10, it's God, the God of all grace, who called you to his own eternal glory in Christ. Christian in this room, let me just read some soul-securing truths for you. It's God's initiative that began this good work in you. He called you by name from the foundation of the world. He took your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh. He opened your blind eyes so that you would see how glorious and good he is. And as believers, we have been, in the words of Ephesians 1, 4 through 5, Paul says, chosen in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. These words are, are difficult for the human mind to understand, but these words are not controversial. These words are comforting to the child of God. Sink your teeth into this truth. Marinate your heart in these words. They've borne so much controversy over the years. And yeah, they're difficult to understand in a way, but they're so comforting out of God. Steep your heart deeply in the fact that God's power, his initiative, is what began this work in you. He's not only drawn you to himself, but to the praise of his glorious grace, he's given you every ounce of power you need to please him with your life. This, this is one truth probably of maybe a dozen in my life that I can think I've thought of probably the most of any other truth in my Christian life. In 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, namely this, you have everything you need through the power of God to live a life that pleases God. Now, we should stand up and give God a standing ovation because that is such good news. It's massive encouragement for beleaguered people of God who often live like we have no choice but to sin. God says here, you have everything you need, everything, all things you need, you have through my divine power for life and godliness. Now, walk it out. Live as if it's true. Everything, all things, for you, to live for me. That's what this passage says. What massive encouragement. There's a funny story of a, a, a float in a New Year's Day Tournament of Roses parade. As it went, y'all probably watch parades. You see the giant floats and carried along by usually by some sort of generator pumping gas into this giant balloon, essentially. And there was a standard oil company float that ironically ran out of gas. You can see the irony, right? Like all of the the resources of this gigantic oil company and their humble little float sputters along and finally runs out of gas. It had to sit there until they brought a can of gas to fill it back up. Is that how we live our Christian lives? divine resources available to us, but acting as if we just don't have any power to do anything more 
than just willingly disobey God or struggle with the same sin we've been dealing with for decades maybe. That is not consistent with this truth. That doesn't mean we're not going to fail. We still have to battle against the flesh in this life. But there's never going to be a moment in your life, hear me when I say this, that you can wake up and say that some form of sin has dominion in your life. Because was the grave too much to stop Jesus? No. Was the darkness of the tomb so dark that he couldn't come out? No. Well, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you to give life to your mortal body. Walk in life. Obey him. Please him. Fight the good fight of faith as if you have all the divine power you need for life. And God, it's the promise for you right here, for me. Is that how we're living? Possessing all the power of heaven, yet living like we have none. God's power has given us everything we need to live a life that pleases him. If you know Jesus, quite literally, you can live like him. What a blessing for the people of God. And maybe you feel hopeless this morning. Powerless, like unable to change. It's been too many years. Habits too deeply ingrained. Failure too commonplace. Just be reminded that the death, that death in the grave itself wasn't able to hold Jesus. Is there anything impossible for God? Does he like power to save, power to change, power to rescue, power to transform? That is the heart of the Christian message. Not only are we saved by the grace of God, but we're changed, transformed from one degree of glory to the next into the image of God. That's not just some separate message. That is a part of the gospel. The good news that broken people can be made new and conformed into the image of Jesus. That's the purpose for which he has called us, in fact. Let me just encourage you, maybe one application here is just pray this promise. Verse 3, pray it with conviction when you wake up. Close your eyes and just say, God, you've given me everything that I need this day to walk in a way that pleases you. Make that a daily habit of walking in that truth, declaring it out loud, speaking it to your heart when you're tempted to believe otherwise, which is all the time for us. There's nothing else that I need to, to walk in godliness in my life. I have everything I need through your power. And that power uniquely comes through the knowledge of God. When you fail, determine not to walk in the shadow of failures if you have no choice but to continue to sin. Instead, determine to know God more and walk in his power, which is intimately connected to a knowledge of him. Colossians 1, verses 9 through 12. Paul says, And so from the day we heard, we've not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work, listen to this part, and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. The God who called us by his own glory and excellence through that same glory and excellence has granted us promises. And those promises for the people of God allow us to partake in the divine nature. What an incredible statement. 
the nature of God, the character of God applied to his people, seen in his people, as we lay a hold of the promises of God in his word, there's a way in which God transforms us into his likeness. You ever even contemplated that thought? That you can look more and more like Jesus in your life as you apprehend, meditate upon the promises of God and come to know him more? That's what this is saying. The power of God linked to his promises, making the people of God more and more like him. The precious and very great promises. They're precious and very great because of the glory and excellence of the God who made them. God is great, so his promises are great. God is vast, so his promises are incredibly vast. Vast beyond comprehension. So are his promises, just like his nature. Providing us security in life right now, assuring us security in life ahead forever. So they're great, but they're also precious. And one of the things we have to remember in Second Peter, you see this a little bit later in chapter 1. Actually, just scan down with me. You can see it right there in front of you. In verse 13 in chapter 1, we see that this is somewhat of a kind of a parting letter for Peter, it seems. He says, verse 13, I think it right as long as I'm in this body to stir you up by way of reminder, since I know that the thing off of my body will be soon, as our Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me. These words are written by Peter in a moment where the end of his life was near. So the, the promises of God are not just precious because of God's character, but they're precious because of the heart that they land on. Like these are precious to me so valuable to me are the promises of God. And in my moment, in my weakness, where I see death is near, the promises of God from his vast and precious character fall on the heart of fallen men, and they become precious to us. Do you have promises like that? Think just for a moment. Verses from the Word of God, promises from the mouth of God that to you have just become precious over the years. If you don't have any, you should. You should have promises that are near to you. I, th I can think of a few. I was thinking of some this morning. I remember as a new believer being encouraged by an older husband about just feeling inadequate as a husband and feeling inadequate as a leader in the church. And, and he gave me 2 Corinthians 3.5 as an encouragement that says not that we are adequate in ourselves to claim anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy comes from God. And he's the one who's made us adequate as ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. I'm not trying to press you with the fact that I memorize these verses. You know why I memorize that verse? Because it was precious to me. There's others I'm sure that you could point to, and the fact of the matter is, like they're precious to us because we've spent time thinking and praying and meditating on them and declaring them, writing them down, putting them in our car on a note card, praying them back to God. Make the promises of God precious to you and watch what he does to change the inclinations of your heart, to posture you toward him and the world differently. What promises from God's word are precious to you? And I can say the more I've been acquainted with these promises, the more my knowledge of God has increased, the more my affection and love for him has followed. I heard a story recently of a, a man who came to faith as, a, as an older man 
man, he was in the workplace and came to faith a little bit later in life. And as he started to read the Bible, he had a secretary, and he had his secretary type verbatim the New Testament letters and put them in an envelope and mail them to his house because he wanted to receive these letters from this book from God to him as the recipient. He wanted to open them up and read them as if they're written just for him. But you don't have to do that. Let me just assure you they're written for you, for your consolation and encouragement to strengthen your faith. Have you read the Bible like that recently? As if it's written for you? Like every word breathed out by the mouth of God for the strengthening of his people, for the glorification of his name. Read the word of God and the promises of God as, as if they're for you because they are. And church family, I would say this kind of as a summation statement. If we are surrendered to the power of God and acquainted with the promises of God, we will increasingly look like the Son of God. So it seems to be the promise in this passage. If we're surrendered to the power of God, acquainted with the promises of God, we'll increasingly look like the Son of God. Partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption of the world. Yeah, there's a real putting off. There's certain behaviors and things in this world we have to put off in order to run the race to please God. And we'll talk more next week about this picture of working hard for fruitfulness, putting away corruption and laying a hold of that which allows us to be fruitful and effective in our love for God and our relationship to him. I want to ask you to bow your head just for a minute. I'm going to pray for us just in a second. I want to ask you to consider just in the scope of your life right now, like is the word of God precious to you? I want to ask you to consider if you've been living as if you don't possess divine power that gives you the ability to walk in godliness in your life. And I want to encourage you to, to not let today go, go by without spending some time with God to thank him for this promise that through his divine power he has granted to you all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who has called you to his own glory and excellence. God, you've been so good to us. You've been so kind. It would be enough to be saved, to be rescued, and to be brought to heaven. But what grace upon grace it is that we in this life can receive power from you to increasingly escape the corruption of this world and to look more and more like you. God, I have to believe is so central to your desire for us. You look at us and the various desires you have for us, that certainly among those desires would be that we would look more and more like you. And that comes from knowing you, knowing your promises, having them become increasingly precious to us. Would you have your word become more precious to us? Thank you for the righteousness that we have through faith in Jesus alone. And as a church family, we 
We stand just in unity to declare that we have no boast, no pride in your presence other than the boast that we have in the cross of Christ through which the world has been crucified to us and us to the world. As we sing one last song, God, I pray that it would be a a response of joy as we talk about your spirit moving into our hearts and in our lives and in this church in such a way that your presence would be palpable. The movement of God amongst the people of God through the word of God and the promises of God making us new and different for a world that desperately needs to see the hope that we have. Jesus, we love you. You are alive and forever for us and we thank you for that. Father, we thank you that you were pleased to crush your son so that we didn't have to be crushed that we are now objects not of your wrath, but objects of your affection. All praise be to you. We love you. In Jesus' name.